Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 145 of the Tick Boot Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is Timing is Everything, an interview with Amanda and Christopher Dahl. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, this is a really beautiful story. We have two people who met as teenagers, got married in their early 20s, both got sick around the same time, went on a lengthy diagnostic journey together, started a parental journey where their child got sick, and the parental journey is what triggered their diagnostic journey to come to an end, and then their healing journey began. Rich, this interview was chock full of information. Amanda and Chris gave us so many Lyme tips and hacks that they learned during their Lyme treatment journey. For example, they talked to us about the full moon and how it impacts people with Lyme disease. We know that the full moon makes our symptoms worse when we have Lyme disease, but Chris and Amanda explain why and what actions we can take to prevent that from happening. We also learned about the use of medically supervised essential oils, and that was a real game changer for Chris and his neurological Lyme disease. We also spoke about energy healing, such as Reiki, and how this brought them into remission and kept them in remission. So Matt, this story has a beautiful ending where these two people and their son went on this beautiful transformational journey where they're now working professionally as healers and they're taking all of the experiences that they gained through their healing journey and they're now sharing it with the world. Matt, I'm really excited to introduce Christopher and Amanda Dahl of Dahl Holistic Healing to the Tick Boot Camp community. Hey, Chris and Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having Hi, us. Thank you for having us. We're really blessed to have you, and we've been uh, we've been stalking you on social media for a long time. So it's great that we finally were able to get you folks onto the podcast. So, man, I'm going to start with you. Can you share with us where you're from? Uh, I am from New Hampshire originally, and now we live in San Diego, California. So you went from uh, East Coast to West Coast. Yes. And Chris, where are you from? I was born in Vermont. I uh, grew up there as a child, and moved to New Hampshire when I was 13, and spent most of my life there until we moved out here to San Diego. When you say we, did you folks meet in New Hampshire or did you meet in California? We met in New Hampshire uh, in high school at 15. Wow. So you guys are high school sweethearts. We sure are. Wow. So that's uh, that's a really cool uh, start to our story. So talk to us about what your experiences were like during your childhood in New Hampshire, because I'm not going to take you back to Vermont because that just seems like it's too long ago. But talk to us about what your experiences were like growing up uh, in New Hampshire. Uh we were, you know, the generation that we grew up in, we played outdoors all the time as young children. I mean, even Chris in Vermont, we, we were outdoorsy kids. And then when we were teenagers, I mean, there were times that, gosh, we were hiking all weekend um, up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire and, um, you know, working teenager jobs and going to school, that kind of thing. And I would say you're pretty, pretty average teenager type of stuff. Now, did your educational experience in New Hampshire include any um, education about ticks and tick diseases? Oh, goodness, no, no. not at all. So when you guys were uh, bouncing around and hiking in New Hampshire during your, um, during your youth, you knew nothing about ticks and you knew nothing about Lyme disease? No, the only time that I read anything about Lyme disease was um, on a hike with my dad, actually. We had hiked... Mount Tecumseh, and there was a sign on the trail that mentioned that there were ticks and be sure to check yourself for ticks, but it, I don't remember it explaining why. And the only reason why I know this is because I actually wrote about it in my journal because my dad and I were joking around saying tick check. And, but I, I had no idea, no understanding of why 
Um, that was pretty much my only exposure to it. And I don't even remember it now. I only remember it from reading it in a journal. So how old were you when you remembered? Oh, actually, let me ask the question differently. How old were you when you journaled that tick check, tick sign experience that you saw? I think I was like 17, 18. So other yeah. than this one sign that you saw when you were a teenager, you knew nothing at all about ticks or tick diseases? Not at all. So Chris, was your experience experienced the same? Did you uh, know anything about ticks or tick diseases during your youth in uh, either Vermont or New Hampshire? Um, actually, my best friend in high school, his mother had Lyme disease. Uh, that was the first time I had heard the term, but it was one of those things that I'm sure your listeners will identify with. It's like, well, she doesn't look sick. There's nothing you can see on the outside. Um, all I knew is that he told me once that his mom had Lyme disease. Uh, that was about my exposure to it until we got it ourselves. Now, with did this Lyme disease experience that you had with this family friend, um, did it put you in a position you understood that was related to um, coming in contact with ticks? Or what was your understanding at that time about Lyme and how you could protect yourself from Lyme disease? I understood because he told me that his mom had gotten a tick bite and that's where it came from. But other than that, it didn't really connect in my brain that ticks were something I needed to watch out for. I don't ever recall having them on me as a child. And we were, I grew up with cow pastures all around me and we were running through the pastures nonstop. That's where we played. So um, it, it was never anything that my family had ever said, oh, and you, you need to watch out for having ticks other than, you know, it was something you heard on TV that people pulled off their dogs. Right. So Amanda, what about you? Did you... Do you ever recall during your youth having uh, to remove a tick from you? No, no, neither one of us ever remember being bitten by a tick before we had symptoms because there, there was a tick bite after symptoms, um, but never before that. And we'll get to that. Let's, let's stay with the, with the timeline, which is all right. So we now have, now have uh, Chris and Amanda high school sweethearts, uh, living the dream of, uh, of, uh, of East Coast um, life. And how did your relationship develop and, and how did your lives develop together from your youth as 15-year-old uh, sweethearts? So we were um, interested in each other in high school, but we were diff with different people. And it, it just, we had a great friendship that at the time, we just didn't want anything to get in the way with it. Um, when I was 20, I moved down to Florida for a few months. Uh, we were separated, but we wrote constantly and we talked on the phone all the time. And that was really when we said, well, wait a second, why aren't we together? And we fell in, in love with each other, you know, long distance. So she packed up everything she had and moved down to Florida. We were there for a few weeks, decided that Florida was not the place for us as a couple. And we moved back to New Hampshire together. <laughs> so it took that separation for us to realize and, and be forced into like, oh, we really are in love with each other. We want to be together. So Chris, what took you down to Florida at that time? My family lives down there and they were starting a landscaping business. So I went down there to help get it started and just for something different, you know, young, not knowing what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I said, well, I'll go down and, and try landscaping, try living somewhere where it's warm all year round and see what that's like. So Amanda, what were you pursuing at that time prior to, to uh, joining Chris in Florida? 
Um, I had gone to school to become a travel agent. So I was, I mean, I was really living the dream with, you know, just traveling a lot. Um, and, you know, I had never even been on an airplane before I became a travel agent. So it was really exciting to, you know, be jetting off to Miami and looking at cruise ships and, you know, just jetting off around the world. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, and then, um, and then when Chris moved down to Florida, I ended up joining him for a little bit. And then we were like, nope. And we moved back and I went back into my career as being a travel agent. Cause thankfully I wasn't gone very long. So they were able to give me my job back. So Chris, when you moved back up to New Hampshire, what type of work were you doing? I was cooking in kitchens. Um, I've always liked to cook and uh, I did a culinary arts program in high school and I decided that I wanted to be a chef. So I started working in kitchens in high school and then after high school. Um, so that really allowed me the freedom to kind of have a job anywhere that I went. So when we came back, I was working in one of the bigger kitchens in the town that we lived in. Now, Chris, during the landscaping phase of your career, did you learn anything about ticks or Lyme disease at that phase of your life? No, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, talk about that in the place we were in Florida. We had bigger, scarier, deadlier things to worry about getting bitten by fire ants and, and water snakes and that sort of thing. So that was really where our focus was. Okay. So you did receive some training about how to protect yourself from different types of natural events, uh, but ticks were not one of them. No, but the, I think the things that we were doing to protect ourselves from those other creatures were also relevant to the ticks, you know, put rolling your pant legs into your socks to make sure that when you're in the marsh, weed whacking that you're not going to get bitten from your legs down, wearing long sleeves, that sort of thing. Okay. And were, were you using any, any type of repellent as well? Not generally. All right. So now let's fast forward. The two of you now move back up to New Hampshire and, uh, and how does your life develop together, both personally and professionally? So when we moved back to New Hampshire, we, you know, just kind of jumped into 20 something life, um, you know, friends, working, traveling, that sort of thing. Um, and then it didn't, it wasn't too long after that, that I started to develop some symptoms that were pretty acute. And then everything just kind of went from there. And we didn't realize at the time that we were in a huge shift. But when we look back, we can see there was definitely a turning point that okay. happened. So Amanda, you're the first of the two of you to begin to show the symptoms that you now know to be uh, your Lyme disease. Yeah. Yep. How, how old were you, Amanda, at the time that you started to first show your symptoms? 20, around 20, two, I yeah. think. I mean, I'm about to turn 45. So this was a long time ago, <laughs> plus that big chunk of Lyme brain in there. Um, I was around 22, I think, when the symptoms really started to develop. And what were those early symptoms? The first symptom that I had was extreme anxiety. And I also ended up being diagnosed with benign positional vertigo. Um, you know, I was just having these unbelievable dizzy spells that I couldn't get myself out of. 
and um, went to see, I mean, that was where the journey started with so many doctors, as I'm sure most people with Lyme disease understand, you see several doctors um, because the anxiety didn't really seem to match up with the vertigo. And, you know, so I was told the, well, take this anxiety medication. And then I was given another medication for the vertigo um, and things went quiet it with my health for a very short time. And then, you know, other symptoms started. I'm going to ask you to pause there for a second. Let's talk about how the symptoms, the early symptoms affected you professionally and personally. Let's talk about professionally first. What impact were the anxiety and vertical having on your career? Um, I was, <laughs> I was sick every single time I flew in an airplane. Uh, literally, you know, the, the bag out of the back of the seat, you know, full by the end of the flight, um, it, migraine headaches, uh, the day after flying, I would have a migraine for probably about 24 hours straight. Uh, and it was, it was crippling and the anxiety became more and more crippling because then it became, oh gosh, I've got to travel. And the anxiety would start and it just all snowballed from there. Now, you said you were seeing doctors at that time. Did any of your doctors suggest to you that all the flying you were doing was having an impact on your immune health and therefore having an impact on your developing symptoms? No, not at all. So now, how was, how was the developing symptomology impacting your relationship with, with Chris? Well, we've always been very caring toward each other. So it was, you know, trying to figure out what was happening and what was going on. And the difficult thing at that time of our lives was that we were working very opposite schedules. You know, I was working all day, like more of like the nine to five gig. And then he was working in a kitchen. So he'd go to work, what was it? Three o'clock. Three o'clock in the afternoon and work sometimes until one o'clock in the morning. So for a long time, we were like ships in the night. So we weren't necessarily always seeing, you know, like you do when you see each other in inside and out every day, we weren't necessarily always noticing every nuance of our illness. So it sometimes it was a, it was a, you know, kind of suffering alone kind of thing. And I think we both went through that at different times in our illness. Now, Amanda, do you ever feel like you weren't being, and uh, actually, help us with where you are in your relationship. Were you married at that time? Were you just dating or living together? What was the nature of your relationship at the time that your symptoms began to develop? We were newlyweds. We got married when we were 22. So we were newlyweds at that point. So it was it was a pretty bumpy start um, because the illness just kind of hit right away um, and things shifted pretty quickly, like things in life had to change pretty quickly for, for both of us. Were there other people in your life who you believe were not understanding of the developing symptoms that you were suffering? Well, at the time it, we were never big drinkers. So for us, I think the thing that shifted a little bit was we just became even more, um, vocal with our friends about the fact that we didn't want to go out to bars. You know, it was terrible going out to loud restaurants and bars, the sound sensitivity that a lot of people develop with Lyme and just everything was so sensory and 
you know, sometimes that was enough to drive you into, you know, what I now know is a flare. <laughs> um, but, you know, just being in a loud bar, being around, you know, a big group of people trying to focus on conversations. So that shifted pretty quickly. As far as family, um, I always had health problems. Even as a small child, I was born with a hole in my heart and, you know, had my first surgery at four years old. So, you know, for my family, it wasn't anything that they weren't used to for me to have health problems. It was just kind of like another round of health problems, except these, these problems didn't really tie into anything that I had experienced in the past. So that's what made it new. But I would say that my family remained understanding because yeah. I was always sick. Okay. Um, so Chris, talk to us about how you were feeling about your new wife's developing symptoms. Were there, were there some things about her developing uh, symptoms that bothered you and led you to feel like, you know, she wasn't upholding her part of the marital bargain? No, not at all. Um, I knew that she always had health issues as she was a child. And as we got older, even when we were friends, you know, I would take her to the dentist because she would have to take antibiotics and the antibiotics would make her so sick that she would really literally like start vomiting as soon as she came out of the appointment. So there are several times that I would take her to the dentist, just trying to be there for her. I knew that she had some challenges, but that was never a problem. I, I found it an honor to be able to care for her. So so talk to us about how her symptoms developed and what changes you saw in your wife as she was getting sicker. Hmm. You know, as you, you know, you, you and your listeners are probably identified with Lyme. It, it happens so slow that it almost sneaks up on you. So it just, it was there almost from the beginning of our relationship. So it just became the norm. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to the doctor for this because I'm experiencing this. And I just tried to be there and be supportive of whatever it was that she was going through. Now, she went to a number of different doctors and she didn't get a diagnosis. Um, did you find that to be frustrating? No, because she did get diagnosed, just not with what the true symptom was. It was like, oh, we know what this is. This is this. So we're going to give you a medicine to help you with the symptoms of that. Uh, at that time, I, I didn't have a lot of experience with people being sick, uh, where I grew up, I, it was in a remote place other than, you know, our, our years together in high school. Um, I grew up with my grandparents and my mother and they were very old fashioned. We just didn't go to the doctor a lot. There was something in the cabinet that my grandmother could use to help us to feel better. So when I got with her, she actually it was like, no, you need to be going to the doctor more. You need to stay on top of your health. It was just not something that we ever did, you know? Yeah. My mom was a nurse. So yes. you went to the doctor. <laughs> right. I, I learned a lot of about caring for myself from her and her family. So Amanda, let's, let's just sort of scope out the amount of time you were sick, but not yet diagnosed. When did you finally get your Lyme disease diagnosis? Uh, 2013. So how long were you suffering from symptoms, which you now know to be your Lyme disease symptoms before you were diagnosed with Lyme? It was 18 years. 
Now, Chris, let's talk about your journey. When did you first start to show the symptoms of Lyme disease? It was not long after hers. My symptoms were different, but growing up, I was always uh, an exceptionally thin person. When I graduated high school, I'm five foot 11. Uh, I graduated high school, I was 129 pounds. I went into boot camp for the army. Um, I was in the army reserves and they, on the way to go down and get, um, do my testing to get into the military, the recruiter handed me a, a gallon jug of water and said, start drinking this. I need you to be the right weight when you go down and test because you're underweight to even get in the army. So I was always very thin. Um, shortly after her symptoms development, you know, uh, 22, 23, I started uh, working for a company servicing payphones, and I drove all around Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and uh, parts of Rhode Island. And I started rapidly gaining weight. And I had always worked in kitchens before that. So I, I thought, well, maybe just because I'm more sedentary, I'm sitting in a car. But it was more than that. I went from around 140 pounds at that point up to 180 pounds within about a year. And, you know, I, I've weighed more than that at times due to Lyme disease, but that was really the, the first big shift that something else was going on. Now, I want to ask the two of you to pause for a minute at this, at this uh, juncture and give us some insight into whether or not you think you were both bitten by ticks separately uh, in the same place, bitten by ticks separately in different places, or whether or not you believe one of you infected the other of you with Lyme disease. And, and, and I mean, I'm going to ask you to answer that question first. Well, that's like kind of the question that we've mulled over literally more than half of our lives now. But I think what we have felt, because when we look back, you know, there was like little nuances, like even before we were starting to show symptoms, there were things that each of us had experienced separately, like with difficulty sleeping and, and different things like that. And I think that we both feel that at some point, one of us must have been infected because when the more acute symptoms started to pop up, it was after we became sexually active with each other. So we've always kind of felt that one of us must have had this already brewing in our system and perhaps passed it to the other um, only because we both started really having the stronger symptoms around the same time. And then, you know, we weren't looking at it as Lyme disease at the time, but now that we know how the symptoms can mimic other health problems, like we realize, like, oh, wow, we were, we both started really kind of spiraling around the same time. So we feel that we must have infected each other, but we don't know who, who did what. So, um, Chris, do you feel the same way? Do you think that? Um, one of you infected the other, or do you think it's possible that because you were living in a tick endemic community that you were both bitten by ticks around the same time? We're, we're kind of on the same page. Um, I mean, we may both have had it dormant and then that sexual activity reactivated in both of us. That There's definitely some commonalities between us. But one of the things that we agreed early on is that it doesn't matter. We both ended up in the same place on the same journey for a reason together. Uh, and that blame doesn't help either of us to heal. Now, 
Um, I, I do want to share with our listeners that uh, offline you shared with us that you have a child who also has Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't want to go too deeply into his story because, it, of course, it is his story to tell. But if you could just generally tell um, our listeners about your son's um, journey with Lyme disease when it started and whether or not you believe he received um, his uh, infection congenitally. Well, our son was actually instrumental in us getting our diagnosis. Um, We certainly didn't know that we had Lyme disease when we decided to start a family. Uh, But when I became pregnant, it it was the perfect pregnancy until seven months and then everything turned upside down. Um, And my son, from the moment he was born, he's always been very, very sensory, Um, you know, especially to heat and cold, to sound, to bright lights. You know, he just, he cried a lot. He spit up a lot. Like he, he just never seemed comfortable. And, um, when he was eight years old, we, we, we always, because we homeschooled, we never pushed to go get, um, a diagnosis, but we suspected that he had autism. And so when he was eight years old, he did receive a diagnosis of autism. But what was very interesting was that the doctor that diagnosed him said, you know, he has autism. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how he feels once his Lyme disease is treated. And we were like, what? (laughs) So, um, so we brought him to a naturopath to help him. And she started asking questions about our health history. And that's when everything started to click and we realized, oh, wow. And at that point, um, and I'll let Chris tell the story, but uh, about his IgenX test, but um, we had already been tested, but told that our tests were considered negative because at the time with IgenX, you needed five positive bands. We each only had four. Um, And that's a whole different part of the story. Yes. So let's stay with this piece for a little bit longer. So your your son started to exhibit symptoms that you thought suggested that um, that he was um, he was managing autism and as mm-hmm. part of that the doctor who was treating him identified him as have, having Lyme disease mm-hmm. yeah they did a that, test on that doc- the the regular test that you know not a lot of people are shown positive for the Eliza test the Eliza test he lit right up and we were very surprised this was his um, general pediatrician at the time had hit on that because of some of the other uh, symptoms he was having at the time. Um, He would get these, every six weeks, he would be down for a week and he would just cough up this clear mucus and he'd just be wiped out. He couldn't even get off the couch. So, you know, we brought him in and and had him had a checkup and they just did this test and it lit up and we're like, wow, okay. And now we we have somewhere to start. And that was really the beginning of all of our Lyme Mm -hmm. journey. So now where were the three of you living at that time? Were you still living in New Hampshire or were you living in California at that time? We still lived in New Hampshire. So it's it's important for us to just identify geographically where you were, because again, if if, uh, we're 
to identify how each of you were infected, it is possible that all three of you were bitten by a tick because you were living in a tick endemic community, or it's possible that you, you two are infecting one another and your son was infected congenitally. So we still don't have a way of identifying, at least geographically, what scenario is most likely. We just know that all three of you are sick from Lyme disease. Right. And, you know, when we were working, we've worked with three different um, Lyme doctors for our son, and each one of them had indicated that they felt that there was a strong possibility that he had Lyme-induced autism. Um, and that, you know, one of the doctors said, when you treat the Lyme disease, a lot of the um, symptoms of autism, a lot of the characteristics of autism that he's demonstrating will probably go away. And that is exactly what happened. I mean, he definitely still has autism. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, we're, we're trying to cure autism or anything like that. But, um, but a lot of the things that he was having issues with went away once he reached remission from Lyme disease. So Chris, let's talk about your journey. How long was your journey between symptom symptomology starting and uh, your diagnosis of Lyme disease? Um, probably similar to Amanda's 18, between 18 and 20 years. And Amanda, how many different doctors did you see between the time that you first started showing your symptoms and the time that you were finally diagnosed with Lyme disease? Oh, gosh, I tried counting, Rich. It, it was at least 20 for all the different things that I was being seen for, you know, because each, each symptom, each acute symptom, I should say, resulted in seeing a different specialist and having different tests and, but nobody was sitting down and looking at the whole picture. When you look at the whole picture as a person with Lyme, it's like, oh, wow, that's very Lyme, <laughs> but nobody was making that connection. So it was this, this, you know, I call it the, the, medical merry-go-round. I was on the medical merry-go-round of seeing this specialist and that specialist and, you know, this medication, this treatment, this test. Um, and it was, it was exhausting as I'm sure so many people listening to this can identify with. So we actually call it the carousel of doctors here at Tick Bootcamp. So yeah. you, um, you're the daughter of a nurse. Uh, you have a lot of faith in Western medicine based on your culture and, uh, and the way you were raised. Um, how did you feel about being on that carousel of doctors? Well, at the time, I wasn't I wasn't looking at it as a whole body issue either. I was looking at it as compartmentalized issues. So I hadn't made that connection either. And until I started working with a naturopath, who naturopaths approach things differently, um, I you know they their very whole body approach where allopathic doctors are very much whatever their specialty is, right? And, and I think that both types of, of doctors are extremely important. Um, I, I'm not in the camp where I'm against one or the other, um, but nobody was making the connection at the time. And it was, it was our son's naturopath who was Lyme literate, thank God, um, that made these connections for us and started tying everything together for us. Talk to us about why you were willing to pivot from a traditional medical doctor to a naturopath. I think it's because when it comes to health, I've always been very open-minded, you know? So for me, it was like, oh, okay. 
this is this is a new and exciting approach because honestly, Rich, at that point, you know, I had already been, you know, doing this whole thing with the doctors. Chris had already been doing it for, for different health reasons. Um, and it just felt so good to have somebody say, yeah, you know, all of these things are probably tied to this, especially where we had had Lyme testing at that point and we were told that it was negative. So, you know, I think when you're told that it's negative in the beginning, you don't do a lot of research yet. So we just didn't know how much it all connected. So Chris, let's talk about your journey. Mm -hmm. uh, you were, you grew up in a rural community and, and uh, you were certainly uh, in a very different mindset than your wife who had, she had grown up as the daughter of a nurse. Uh, you were, you were the kind of guy who's, uh, whose uh, grandparents and mom would put, uh, I guess, rub dirt on the cut and say, you're better, go get, uh, move on. So talk about your experience with doctors and, and, um, and how your carousel of doctors developed. So um, at 22, I was diagnosed with high blood pressure and went on two to three medications, which I've been on since, uh, not uncommon in my family. Amanda, being with Amanda really brought awareness to how important it is to watch after yourself um, as, as far as healthcare. Uh, I literally grew up on an island um, in the middle of Lake Champlain. There was one doctor for the whole island, and that's who you went and saw once a year to get your checkup uh, to make sure nothing was wrong. So we just didn't go to the doctors a lot. I lived with a single mom. I had a, a younger sister. The, the awareness just wasn't there. There was bigger things to worry about every day, you know, paying the bills and, and uh, having a home and all that. And that's where my grandparents really came in and, and helped take care of us. Um, but being with Amanda, when we, when I, I'd start to go see these doctors and a lot of times, you know, growing up that way, it was like, you're sick. Well, suck it up. Everyone gets sick. There, there wasn't, a lot of compassion in that way. There's just not something that was common in my family. But as I would get sick, a man would say, you know, you need to go see the doctor for that. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, it, it's just a, it's just a spell. And, and she'd say, no, you, you don't realize you've been complaining about this for two months. You really need to go see someone. So uh, I, I got more into maintaining my own health. The, the weight gain that I had, I, didn't put that together as being part of a chronic illness. I thought I just had a body shift, but also my allergies started getting really bad. And I went to see an allergy doctor and she put me on Flonase and other allergy medications. And so all these treatments just started compounding. And I, you know, I was accumulating a pillbox every day of things that I had to take. But really when uh, Amanda was pregnant with our son, that was a really big shift for both of us. Uh, as far as symptoms, her, her heart symptoms ramped, ramped up, but all, I started having really bad kidney symptoms and she was seven months pregnant. And I came downstairs ready for work. Uh, I worked for the cable company at the time I was installing cable TV and I got these sharp pains in my back. And I was like, Oh, this, this doesn't feel right. And then all of a sudden I'm on the floor and Amanda comes waddling down the stairs, very pregnant. <laughs> and she's like, what's going on? And I said, I don't know. I think I'm dying. I feel like someone's knifing me in the back. It was so incredibly painful. So she helped me the best as she could to get into the car and brought me to the hospital. 
And uh, I was passing a kidney stone, which I had never had before. Uh, and that became a big part of my life up until a couple of years ago. I frequently had kidney stones. And that was one of the things that came out of the Lyme disease for me was these kidney problems. And it was a carousel of tests. I went to a nephrologist. I had uh, a nuclear scan. I had MRIs. I had an arteriogram because they thought I had narrowed arteries. None a of those stent? things. You yeah. had a kidney stent? No, they were going to put in a stent but they didn't because what they thought was there. That's right. Wasn't actually there. Um, so much you lose track. <laughs> yeah. That, yes. But lots of doctors who said, I think it's this. And you go through all these diagnostics and they're like, Nope, it wasn't that I'm sorry. And it's like, well, where am I, I at now? You're healthy. There's nothing there. So Chris, you had 18 years of either no diagnosis or a symptom diagnosis um, how many different doctors did you see during that 18 year window before you were diagnosed with Lyme disease? Mm. It, it was greater than 15 Yeah. between specialists and, and my own primary care physicians. Uh, we did shift primary, primary care physicians a couple of times because they would get frustrated. Yeah. Um, you know, towards the end of right before I got diagnosed, uh, we were working with a nurse practitioner and I was going in and I was saying, I'm having these symptoms. And I, I would talk to people that would have some very similar symptoms. And one was a coworker that had been diagnosed with MS. He was in the military like me. And I thought, well, maybe there was something I was exposed to in the military that could have potentially triggered MS. So I went to him and I said, I'm having all these neurological symptoms. I had tremor so bad, I couldn't pick things up. I had brain fog. Uh, and I would just sit there, you know, I'm a hobbyist um, in electronics and computers. And I would sit there and try to solder something. And my hand would be tremoring so bad that I'd put down the iron. I would just sit there and cry because I couldn't do things that I used to do. And so I went to him and I said, you know, I, I have a, a friend coworker that has these symptoms that are very similar to mine. And he has MS. And he had given me all, all sorts of other tests. And he said to me, you know what, I'll send you for an MRI, but when this comes back negative, would you admit that there's nothing wrong with you? And that just kind of broke my heart and I walked away kind of defeated for a moment. And Amanda was there and she was very angry. We get out to the car and she's like, don't you listen to him. We're not admitting anything. You, There is something wrong here and we are gonna find out what that is. So that was close to the end of seeing that doctor and moving on to the naturopath that we ended up that you know, initially our son went there and she said, yes, he has Lyme disease, but I want to look at mom and dad because it is not typical that the, only the child has it and the parents don't have something going on, especially where you don't have an identified tick bite. Mm -hmm. And that was really the enlightenment for all of us. It was like, oh, yes, mm -hmm. now things start to make sense. All of these are symptoms that we've been chasing for 15 years at that point fall under this umbrella. Yeah. So Chris, I'm sitting here getting more and more angry listening to your story because both um, because both you and Amanda got an Igenix test early on in your journey. It came back not positive enough at the time. And then Lyme went out of your mind up until your child was born. So it just, it amazes me that somebody was smart enough to think, let's use Igenix, one of the, the world's top Lyme diagnostic labs and yet 
just because it wasn't positive enough, it was put out of your mind by your doctors to not proceed with that, that course of action or that, that down that road for a potential diagnosis. But now let's talk more about when your child was born, your son was born, and your, your son's doctor said, I want to focus more on you guys, the parents, and seeing if you have Lyme as well. What was that like for you when it was brought back into your mind that maybe you do have Lyme disease despite this negative, quote unquote, test you got many years ago? Well, the, the IgenX test had actually been probably within a year of when our son got his diagnosis. That was one of the, the last things that happened with this doctor that made that statement to Chris. Um, you know, and uh, when we went our son, she said, have you ever been tested? And we said, yes. And of course, like many of you that are listening, probably have the binder, right? The three ring binder of all of your tests and your blood work and your office visit notes. And I literally have a three ring binder for each of us. So I whip out the binder and I've got the IgenX test results right there. And she looked at it right away and said, yeah, you have Lyme disease. So she was the one like knowing us for, I think we had been in her office for 45 minutes at that point, um, took one look at our tests and said, oh, oh yeah, yeah, you have Lyme disease. And I said, well, how can you diagnose us when all of these other doctors said no? And she said, where there's smoke, there's fire. You have four positive bands. She said, I don't care if they say that they need five. She said, I can diagnose you off of symptoms and between your symptoms and between the bands that are positive on this test, I can tell you that you have Lyme disease and tears of relief, of frustration, because it all came to a head, right? It was that tsunami of emotion that, you know, all of us were feeling at that point, you know, the terror because, oh my gosh, we didn't know a lot about it yet. You know, the, and, and our son, is affected by this and you know what have we done we started a family we didn't you know all, like a million emotions ran through me mm-hmm. at that one moment and um elation to finally have validation of everything that had been going on but then the terror and the oh my god what do we have in front of us you know just that whole that whole wave of emotion so man do we try to find tips or hacks for people that are at earlier stages of the journey than our guests are. And it seems like from your experience, it took you almost 17 or 18 years to get properly diagnosed from the time in your early 20s to when you were 37 with your son and your son's naturopathic doctor for your diagnosis. So looking back, if you had to give advice to somebody who's at an earlier stage than you are, would you recommend they seek an alternative health practitioner like a naturopath instead of keeping on this medical medical merry-go-round of traditional doctors? Not necessarily when I, cause now I do health coaching for people and you know, when they come to me and they say, look, this is what's been going on. What I tell them to do is to find a Lyme literate doctor. There are Lyme literate MDs and there are Lyme literate NDs. So I tell them you need to find a Lyme literate doctor and you need to take an appropriate test not ELISA, not Western blot, because they're not sensitive enough. You need to get yourself tested by a doctor who's knowledgeable with the symptoms, 
who understands the testing that needs to be done. And I told, and I told them, I said, you know, sometimes on your test results, it may still show less bands than are technically required to get a diagnosis. But if you're working with an appropriate Lyme doctor, they can diagnose you off of clinical symptoms. So I really try to drive that point home with people. And a lot of times the resistance is money. And I tell them, look, this is money well spent. Get this done because you don't want to be sitting here in six months and you're in the same spot or like what happened to us years go by and you're in the same spot feeling even worse right? Even more lost. And then you find out all along it was Lyme disease. So I would tell people um, definitely get to a Lyme literate doctor. There are resources for it. I'm sure Tick Boot Camp probably has resources listed somewhere um, to get an appropriate test. And something well, I want to this point as well is um, that, you know, I, I'm uh, also in computers by trade. You know, I have a technical mind on top of our, our Reiki and, and spiritual healing that we do. Um, one of my first questions was that test came back negative. How can you possibly diagnose us? And she gave me a great uh, response, which was, Chris, you've been sick for so long that your body's given up. This test is a test for antibodies. And when you're sick long enough, your body's pumping out so many antibodies that aren't doing anything to help you kill the kill off this Lyme and the co-infections, eventually it's going to get so tired. It's not going to make as many of them. So that really hit home to me. So if you're listening, you've been uh, sick for a really long time, please don't give up, you know, find that doctor that's going to help you between the test and the symptoms, get the diagnosis that you need and you deserve. Chris, that's such an important note for our listeners because we have so many people come to us on a regular basis and say, I have a negative Lyme test or I have a Lyme test that's showing that I have some bands but not enough bands to be positive. I can't possibly have Lyme disease. And it's simply just not true. And so many people are misled for years by that misinformation. And I think from what both you, Chris and Amanda, you have been through, you guys are able to properly guide people based on your experience now in your health coaching business. And you are a perfect example. And I'm sort of jumping ahead here, but you've been through it, you've entered remission and you've remained in remission by changing your lifestyle. And I think that's something that many people need to understand and learn once they have Lyme that once you start to get better, you can't revert back to your old unhealthy lifestyle. And I know I'm jumping ahead, but I think that's an important part to mention here. So Let's jump into now you finally have your clinical Lyme diagnosis. Your son is diagnosed with this positive lab work. What do you do to treat your Lyme disease for all three of you? So when we first started treatment, we were in New Hampshire. And at the time, even naturopaths were still very allopathic in their thinking um, because of the restrictions that are put on them in certain states. And I understand some of that has changed now. But at the time, you know, they were um, still diagnosing antibiotics and, and different things like that. So me, knowing that I had a sensitivity to so many antibiotics and just flat out allergies to the others, I was very hesitant to start treatment. And I understood that somebody had to not be, because at this point I understood what a Herx was. And I understood that somebody had to kind of try to hold up the fort here. 
So um, Chris and our son started treatment first and they were treating, Chris was on five different antibiotics a day, twice a day. And our son was on four different antibiotics a day, twice a day. Plus they were taking supplements and things like that. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it remained like that. So that was the end of 2013. And it remained like that until we moved. Now we moved to California. We were here by the middle of 2014. Um, so we didn't treat in New Hampshire that long before we moved to the West Coast and connected with a different doctor who was a naturopath. Naturopathic medicine on the West Coast was very different than the East Coast. And California in general is very different from everywhere else because, uh, you know, medicine here is very different. There's a lot, I feel like there was a lot more options for alternative treatments. Um, so when we got here, we shifted our treatment a, a bit. Um, and then I eventually started treating as well, going a more natural route. And then we eventually got the guys off of antibiotics and went a more natural route. So Chris, can you talk to us about what it was like going on the five different antibiotics for your Lyme disease? Was it, was it an immediate Herxheimer reaction? And, and do you think it was even worth it? Uh, yes, it was worth it. Um, yes, I got very, very sick. There's just so much die off from all that, those antibiotics that, um, you just can't do enough detoxing when you're, when you're taking that much stuff. Um, but I also was seeing improvements in other parts of my life. So yes, I felt run down. I felt like I had the flu all the time. Sometimes I would get nauseous and vomiting, but also my cognitive fun functions were improving. Um, my body aches were starting to go down. So there was a little trade. Um, and as you know, there's these cycles that go on as the life cycle of the, the Lyme in your system goes through its, its own life cycle. So you have some days that are great and some days that aren't, aren't very good at all. My good days were becoming more frequent and they were better than my quality of life had been for so many years before. So um, being on that, I don't regret it. When we switched to the more natural alternatives, I found it much gentler. Uh, it was at points stronger, but I, I, for me, I think I needed the journey with both types. And what would you say about your son's journey? He was on four antibiotics. Do you think it, his situation was the same as yours, that it was necessary, but it was sort of, he was going to feel worse before he started to feel better? Hmm. What do you feel, Amanda? It's hard to say because he does have autism and um, the way autism manifests in him is that sometimes he can't, uh, he doesn't know what is normal and what's not normal. And I think for him, he had felt not great for so long that he didn't really understand um, what was happening, uh, to be perfectly honest. And um, <clears throat> so I think that that was hard for him. Uh, you know, there were a lot of a lot of tears. You know, he one of the symptoms that he would have quite a bit was some chest pain when he was on antibiotics. Um, so I think that 
<clears throat> it affected his, his heart and his circulatory system a bit. And when he was first starting treatment, it really seemed to flare that up. He would tell me all the time, mommy, I'm having strong tingles, strong tingles. And he'd kind of curl up and crunch up his face. And that that's really hard as a parent. Um, and he had that reaction to the- Yeah. And then that was, that was, you know, talking about a pivot point, that was a pivot point for all of us because um, one of the antibiotics that he went on, he, at this point, I slept with him every night. Chris slept alone. I slept with our son because he had such a hard time sleeping. Um, Sometimes children will report seeing images and, you know, like uh, going through their vision. And he was uh, reporting that he was seeing people standing at the end of his bed at night. And, you know, that, that he wasn't sure about that. And, you know, he had a hard time sleeping. He would very often have a fever and this was after treatment started. Um, So one night he woke me up and he was hitting his chest and he was saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. So of course we were terrified and, you know, rushing him to the emergency room, but the turning point in all of it was that I immediately prayed to God. And I said, please help us get through this. I will spend the rest of my life helping people to heal from this. If you can just help us get through this night. And, um, we went to the hospital and, you know, of course that was, that was a fight because we explained, you know, why he was on these antibiotics and, the emergency room physician proceeded to print out 38 pages of information about Lyme disease, which if you're in this world long enough, you understand what that information was, right? Um, mm-hmm. 30 days of antibiotics and you're cured. And, um, and she also spotted from head to toe. She, he was, he had a rash from head to toe because he was having an allergic reaction. And of course, here come the steroids. Um, you know, but it was a life or death at that point. Uh, so, you know, he was on a nebulizer, he was having steroids, we were trying to calm his system down so that he could take a breath and and thank God, um, everything worked out with that. But, you know, it was an argument. It was an argument with the emergency room staff, you know, let's not, let's not fight about Lyme disease right now. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here because my son is having an allergic reaction and he can't breathe. Just please help him to breathe. Lyme disease and fighting about 30 days of antibiotics for Lyme disease is not what I'm here to do with you today. Um, so that was a turning point because when I made that promise to God, I had no idea how I was going to do that. You know, at that point, I was, uh, you know, I was working in a hospital in a diabetes clinic. Um, you know, I wasn't a health coach. We weren't energy healers. Like we didn't even know that that life existed. So um, that was really a turning point and where I just doubled down and recommitted that I was going to do everything that I could to get my family better, learn all that I could so that I could bring that information out to the world and help others. Because at that point, we knew how serious Lyme disease is and what a, a, a tragedy it is in, you know, in the world right now about how Lyme people are treated, the diagnosis process. And, you know, the fact that there is no standard of care, that everybody is a different formula for treatment. Like we understood the gravity of that and, and it just became our mission. Like we need to do something about this. 
there's clearly major foreshadowing going on here with this story. But before we get there, uh, Chris, do you recall the antibiotics that you were on, the five different types of antibiotics that you were on? Oh, gosh. Uh, I know it was a while ago. <laughs> so. I can't even remember them all. You probably have them in a box out in our dining yeah. room. Uh, the, no the worries there. Um, I, I we can't remember. Can't yeah, no remember. worries there. So, so the other, yeah. So you probably doxycycline, right? Was one of one of the most common oral antibiotics. Maybe azithromycin potentially is another yes, one. That was in there. Um, is rifampin? Rifampin for rifampin. a while. Minocycline. Any. Anything like that? Yeah, I mean, between the two of them, they were on slightly different ones too, because our son was young, so there were there were some that he couldn't take yet, um, you know, protecting the teeth and all of that stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I have the list, but you know, Lyme brain, three people sick. <laughs> I can't remember that far back. I apologize. No, I totally get it. So, <laughs> Amanda, from your perspective, you've you've you didn't go on treatment because you were focusing on your husband and your son. And how was your health throughout all this while you were working with, with your husband and your son and what caused you guys to move at that point and uproot your lives to move to LA? Uh, well, we moved to San Diego. I'm sorry, um, San Diego. Oh, that's okay. Um, so what happened was we, we came out to, we had been to San Diego before Chris and I, and we really loved it. And in 2013, we came out on a vacation. We brought our son with us and um, we just needed to get away. I mean, we, we were in the throes of just such a nightmare and we just wanted to, to pretend that we were normal for a little while and go somewhere where we didn't have to worry about, you know, walking on the beach and getting bitten by a tick, right? So we came out to San Diego and Chris and I, deep in our hearts, we really wanted to move to California. We had loved it when we had visited back in 2011, and, but we determined that we weren't going to treat it like a, a like a, a, a mission to figure out if we were gonna live here. We just wanted to treat it as a vacation. But then our son threw us for a loop because we had a fantastic week out here and we all felt so much better. It was amazing just the difference in climate and being able to be outside and not have all of that fear in our system. We all felt really good at the end of that vacation, um, just to have a break. And when we were at the um, heading to the airport, we had stopped to put gas in the rental car before we returned it. And our son said, do we have to go back there? <laughs> and Chris and I just looked at each other. We were like, that's it. So that's what um, really kind of pushed us to make the move out to, out to California. You know, I'll never forget. He at the time he was having a lot of rage issues, Lyme oh, rage, yeah. um, and he came out and he was just so happy. And uh, sorry, it's going to make me teary. I know. But he said to us, "I think California cured, cured my me. anger." And it's, we looked at each other. We're like, "We need to be out here." It's all right. We're we're I'm a mush as well. I've already cried twice, so that's okay. Um, <laughs> So to, if you can, and I know it's a sensitive subject, if you're comfortable speaking to us a little bit more about Lyme rage, because we haven't learned 
about, we didn't learn about Lyme rage up until, you know, the last few months and about how severe it really can be. And many people often ask us, what is Lyme rage? How do you recognize it? And what are some things you can do to help alleviate Lyme rage? So can you speak to those points? Well, I don't know that Amanda ever really had it. Uh, our son did, and I had bouts of it. It is just this intense, irrational anger about things that normally would not anger you. Um, I, I'll tell you one moment that sticks out in my mind, and I don't know if I've even shared this with Amanda before. Um, you know, a, as part of this uh, whole journey, I went on anti-anxiety and medications, antidepressants, um, ADHD medications to help, you know, just so I could be awake and functioning. And I was working on getting our house ready to move, working down in the basement. And I felt this rage come on and Amanda had done her pill boxes, you know, cause it, it was so complicated to figure out how you balance all these medicines and the supplements. So they don't step on top of each other. And I'm working down there and I started to get angry. And then I thought to myself, I wonder, have I been taking my uh, anti-anxiety medications? And then I, it, it, I had this thought in my head that Amanda was purposefully not putting them in my, my pillbox just to mess with me. And I just started getting so mad and I started throwing things around the basement as I'm working down there. And it just came out of nowhere and it was stronger than I had ever felt before. Like angry over nothing. And it, it, it wasn't true at all. I had to go up and check my pillbox. I'm like, oh, they're there. And I, so it was just moments like that where things would just, it's just a rational rage. Um, and our son used to get it really bad. Um, and being, you know, even when he was a younger child, he, he be, would become uncontrollable with his rage and nothing could calm him down except time. So let's talk more about the pivot from the antibiotic cocktails you were taking to the more natural approach, which then I believe all three of you started the natural approach once you were in San Diego. Sure. Yeah. So when we started working with the doctor out here in San Diego, we had, you know, at that point we had kind of hit a, well, they had hit a plateau um, where, you know, I would say they were still having more more lousy days than good days, but things had gotten a little bit better, but they weren't progressing at all. Um, so this naturopath worked with us. Well, she, she got me on a treatment to, to start. And then she also started to shift um, Chris and our son off of antibiotics and start to shift to more natural things and putting a focus on gut health and detoxification, because those were things that hadn't been addressed before. It really hadn't been imparted on us how important it was to pay attention to gut health and um, have a strong detox protocol to go along with all of this. So there were some pieces that were added. And, um, and then that's when we started to see uh, you know, we were coming out of that plateau and, and, and moving forward again with the healing. So now talk to us more though about what these natural treatments were specifically. Do you recall was what combination of antimicrobial and then a moon boosting and, and gut healing supplements you were taking? Yeah, so 
we switched and all three of us started doing an essential oil protocol, um, <clears throat> which I know that there's several protocols floating around there on the internet, but at the time it was relatively new um, that people were talking about using essential oils, especially we did them internally, which is definitely something that you have to do under the direction of a doctor if you wanna go that route. Um, but we started doing the essential oils internally and that was really the antimicrobial piece of things. Um, there are also oils that help with anxiety and digestion. So we started to implement some of those. Um, we were also starting to use herbal tinctures for different things. And honestly, I can't even remember all of the ones at this time, because this was again, back in like 2014, 15, um, uh, and, you know, using vitamins and being strategic about when you take things, right? Because a lot of times doctors will hand you the list of supplements or medications or whatever they want you to take. And they'll say, take this three times a day and take this twice a day. But they don't always necessarily give you what times of day and before or after meals or, you know, make sure you're taking charcoal at least two hours away from anything else. Like, but then all of a sudden we had a doctor that was a little bit more cognizant of all of that. So it's like we had more of a recipe, right? Um, and then that's when we started to see a lot of progression because we were paying close attention to all those different pieces. We were paying attention to the detox, to the gut health, to the anxiety, to the Lyme rage, you know, and then how were we feeling overall, you know, were we feeling the symptoms go down? Because, you know, when you have certain co-infections, you kind of know after a while which co-infection you're feeling in your system. Like, you know, if you're getting, you know, a lot of itchy skin, you know, around your waist, it's probably Bartonella. And, you know, if you're, you know, you kind of just learn what you're, um, what you're working on. So then um, I kind of modified our, our treatment a little bit and I started realizing, cause I journaled, I had a medical journal. I've always kept a medical journal since being a kid. Cause again, mom's a nurse and um, it really helps to see patterns. So I was looking at my medical journal and I realized that my migraine headaches were corresponding to the moon, full moon, new moon. And I noticed that we were all flaring more during the full moon and the new moon. So I actually modified our schedule so that we were doing a lot of the killing, the antimicrobial, the heavy duty treatments a couple days before the new or full moon through the moon and for a couple days after. And then on the alternate weeks, we were focusing more on detoxing and supporting the system. And, and the reason why I got the idea to do it that way is because I figured everything is active when the moon is doing its thing. So if I can target these bugs when they're moving around in the system and when they're super active in the system, I'll have a better chance at killing them off and then focusing on the detox on the opposite times, getting it out of the system. And it was amazing how well this worked for all of us. I mean, literally, it was two to three months of doing this cycle. And we hit the point where we were having many more good days than bad days by kind of following this kind of treatment idea, which I now use with a lot of my own clients. 
So, man, I just want to make sure that I understood that correctly, because yeah. there we always see on social media and, and in DMs and in just direct communications we have with people that the full moon really impacts Lyme. So I think what you said is, I want to recap that, is the full moon makes Lyme more active in your system. So yeah. that's when you want to actually go in and, and kill it while it's out and then detox when it's not a full moon to help rid your body of all the die off and all the toxins from the die off. Is that, is that essentially exactly. what you're saying at a high level? Yeah, exactly. So we were working on a four week schedule. So it'd be but for the new moon and the full moon, we would really hit it hard. We'd start a couple days before. So you really have to pay attention to the lunar calendar. So a couple days before and then all during and then for a couple of days after. So it was like a seven day cycle, but the new moon or the full moon be right smack in the middle of it. And then on the opposite seven day cycles, we would we would still treat, but much lighter. And we would really hit on the detoxing so that we could get all the dead stuff out of our system, rebuild the system. And, and you know, all the while following the right diet, water, no alcohol, you know, all those things at the same time, of course. Um, but we really found that that cycle worked really well for, for the three of us. And another great tip that I heard in that, that previous statement was, you can be taking all of the right things, but if you're not taking them in the right timing or order, it cannot be effective for you. So for example, if you take a binder too close to a treatment or a supplement, that binder can, can pull that out and make it less effective. Yes. So I think it's another important part that many people don't think about during their treatment journey with Lyme disease. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, and another one, just if people are curious, um, another one is glutathione. So often people are told, take glutathione. It's so important to take glutathione. There's a couple of tips that I give my clients with glutathione. And if you don't mind, I'll throw them out here. Yes. Um, glutathione, it's, it's something that uh, is best taken about an hour before you eat anything in the morning. And I really like the liposomal glutathione. You can put it under your tongue. doesn't taste super fantastic, right? It doesn't smell great. A lot of us know that, but put it under your tongue, hold it for at least 10 to 20 seconds. And then, you know, you can go ahead and take a sip of water or something if you need to. But um, it's a, it's a big tip that I give people if they wake up in the morning and they've got that awful brain fog, or they've got that headache, the glutathione is going to start to knock that down. The other thing about glutathione is that it can give you some energy. So a lot of times if I'm working with a client and I, I typically only work with clients if they also already have a doctor, it doesn't necessarily have to be a Lyme doctor, but a, a doctor to, um, to go back and get their scripts from, but I'll look at their treatment schedule. And sometimes they're told to take glutathione before bed. And I'm like, oh, no. And then they're telling me that they can't sleep. So I'm like, okay, let's Let's shift your glutathione in the morning before you eat. And then let's also do your glutathione maybe a little bit before lunch. Let's not take it in the afternoon because we've got to try to get you some sleep. You know, you're up until three in the morning, right? So those are the types of things that I look at when I'm looking at somebody's medications and supplements that they're on. You know, a lot of times it's really a matter of finding the perfect timing to take things you know, and, and, you know, like with binders, don't take them within two hours of other things. And it can be tricky, right? Because sometimes we're on, you know, a medication schedule that requires us to take things sometimes five different times during the day. 
So you have to really perfectly time things out. And it's one of the things that I do with people is I help them figure that out. And, you know, and I tell them, you know, let your doctor know that, you know, we're just going to shift this up a little bit. We're not taking anything away. I'm not diagnosing, treating, prescribing, but we're shifting a little bit to give you a better outcome with your treatment. So this is really helpful because not only do you want to focus on a protocol that works best for you, but you have to sequence that protocol and you have to be aware of the interactions of that protocol with each other. Otherwise it may not even work for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, people will come to work with me and they're so frustrated because they're like, I've tried everything. I've done everything, you know, and I, and I'll tell them, okay, do you have the Tupperware tub with all of the things that you've been on that you throw it in the tub because you say it didn't work. Okay. I want you to send me a list of everything in that tub. I want you to send me a list of everything that you're currently on. And I this is how I explain it to people when it comes to treatment. Treating Lyme is like being handed a big, a big wad of locks, padlocks. They're all padlocked together. It's a big ball of padlocks. And then you're also handed a huge ring of keys. You have to figure out which lock takes which key, but also in a particular order, right? So it's tricky. But when you have somebody who's been through it, like Chris and I have, you know, we can sit down and we can say, okay, you know what, this is the lock that you need to do first right here. And then do this one and then add in this one. And like, we can help people kind of sort through all of that because sometimes it's not that a particular treatment medication or supplement isn't going to work for you. It might be that it wasn't the right time for that supplement. So going back to glutathione, when I first started taking glutathione, it was a disaster for me. It was, it did not work well for me. I felt like it made everything worse. And then in talking to clients and kind of tracking things, I found that a lot of people, if they had a very active Babesia infection and it was early in their treatment and they were trying to take glutathione, it didn't seem to work very well for them. But after knocking down that Babesia infection a little bit, they could add in glutathione and they'd feel a lot better. So sometimes it was just a matter of timing for that supplement. So let's talk a little bit more about essential oils and ingesting essential oils, because even I have asked this question numerous times to people that sell Young Living and, and a wide variety of other types of essential oil products. There's so much information out there on the internet that's conflicting about the safety of ingesting essential oils. So can you speak first to the safety of ingesting essential oils with all this you know, conflicting information out there? Sure. So before deciding that you're going to go to that, go that route, I think it's important to know um, that it can cause allergic reactions in people, right? It, it is very concentrated. Essential oils are very concentrated. So if you are continuously exposing your body to essential oils internally, you can cause your body to have allergic reactions. So if people have mast cell activation syndrome, you've got to be very careful, right? You really want to consider that. Um, when we decided to try essential oils internally, um, we didn't have those sorts of issues with um, mast cell, but also we had to really weigh things out because the way we looked at it is, you know, we were on some of the, some of the um, pharmaceuticals out there, they have what's called a black box 
label, right? And those are, um, those are medications that have some pretty dire reactions to them that can cause you to die. So they call them black box warnings. We were on some of those. So when we were weighing, okay, we want to take essential oils and we understand that it can cause some side effects. We weighed it against what we were already doing. And for us, it was the, it was a decision of, well, you know what, we're already doing something that's very risky. So why not give this a try? I think that it is a decision that everybody needs to think long and hard about. And I also think that it is very important to find a practitioner who understands how these oils work in the body, how to prescribe them, you know, and they have experience with them. There are doctors out there who have experience with essential oils. And I recommend if you want to go that route to very closely work with a doctor who understands that I don't recommend trying to go it alone. I don't rec recommend, you know, going to one of the MLM reps and asking them to give you the protocol and guide you through it. Um, you know, I think that it's really something that you have to go with a professional on. So now for those that are listening that want to pursue this route and work with potentially somebody like you and their doctor to explore essential oils in their healing journey, can we talk more about the different types of oils and how they can be used to treat Lyme if they're ingested? Do you mean like the specific oil and what it does? Yes, please. Okay. Um, so a lot of people have heard about using like oregano oil. Oregano is a very broad spectrum antibiotic um, oil. So a lot of people will use that. Um, the, the thing about uh, oregano as well as clove, because clove is another one that um, is used in Lyme treatment is that they are what's called hot oils. So you have to make sure, I always tell people, um, eat a couple bites of food then take the oil internally. I put them in veggie caps, okay? Um, put it in a veggie cap, take it, and then continue to eat. So that way there is something in your stomach to help absorb the oil so that it doesn't um, you know, burn your esophagus, it doesn't harm the lining of your stomach. Um, so uh, oregano is broad spectrum. Um, Clove is, uh, that helps with what's called quorum sensing. So clove will actually slow down quorum sensing. So that means that all of these microbes that are in the body, it makes it harder for them to talk to each other to say, hey, let's reproduce, right? So it kind of isolates them. So that way, when things like the oregano get to it, it kills it and it slows down the ability to replicate and continue to grow in your system. So that's why um, clove is part of that treatment. Um, Malaleuca is another one or tea tree oil that people take internally because that helps to keep down candida or yeast. Um, it's, it's an antifungal. Um, peppermint is one that's commonly used and that helps um, not only with biofilms, uh, for those of you who understand like that biofilms form in the body, but it also helps to keep the digestive system a little bit calmer. Um, frankincense is one that's typically used because that is a really good oil to help with inflammation in the body. Um, so a, a co it's common for people to use um, frankincense. Do we use Melissa? Uh, Melissa oil is another one that, um, that one is an, an oil that's known for its antiviral properties. So if you're somebody who has Epstein-Barr, 
um, or some of the viral illnesses that can come from Lyme disease. Um, Melissa oil is one that is typically used for that. I mean, I can go on and on. Am I missing? Am I missing any of the big ones? Well, the, the one that we used a lot and every oil company seems to have their variant. Uh, doTERRA's is called On Guard. Young Living is called Thieves Jeez, Oil. Yeah. It's like a, an antibacterial, antiviral blend that really yeah. works well. And we also use that in between, you know, if you're starting to get a cold or something. Right. Um, it, it just helps your body knock it down because it's got several different oils in it that have been blended for just that. But as Amanda said, you really need to work with a doctor. Don't just go out and buy these oils because you found it on a forum somewhere that this worked for someone. Uh, we both have had experiences where you take those hot oils and it's like, wow, my stomach is on fire. Yeah, you have <laughs> to be they careful. Are very, very strong. Mm -hmm. So Chris, we, we have heard so many people contact us directly about using thieves to help in the Lyme healing journey without any of these disclaimers or cautions. So I think it's really important that people be aware of the use of essential oils to help in, in healing from Lyme, but understand the potential risk factors and working with somebody who's knowledgeable about them like you guys, and also working with their doctor to utilize them as one of the options to treat their Lyme disease. So do you feel that essential oils were a helpful tool or an important tool in your Lyme healing journey? Yes, absolutely. 100%. They're what got us there to, yeah. the, to the remission in the end. Um, we did the dance of different uh, um, antibiotics. And while that did have a place in our healing journey, the essential oils was absolutely what got us over the line because um, a lot of the oils have the ability, especially, you know, Matt, you can identify with having neural Lyme a lot of the, it, it's hard to find those antibiotics that will pass that blood brain barrier. Mm -hmm. And when you're having severe neurological issues, it's like to have a day that where you're free of those is such a blessing. And the oils have that ability Their Their molecules are small enough where they can cross that barrier. So um, for me, that that's really what cleared up a lot of my neuro Lyme symptoms. And Chris, I think that's a really important tip for other people that may be listening. There are many people that we've spoken with that have been on the cusp of exploring IV antibiotics because oral antibiotics just couldn't really effectively break that blood-brain barrier. So Chris, would you, based on your neural Lyme experience, recommend people explore essential oils first before exploring an IV uh, antibiotic protocol? From my own experience, you know, I, I, I don't want to discourage anybody from doing what they feel is right. But I will tell you, one of my best friends, um, this was right before we got diagnosed, one of my best friends that I, I worked with, he would come in and once a month, a nurse would come in and put in a new pick line in his arm. And he had three giant syringes of antibiotics that he would inject directly into his heart. And he'd have to take them out and warm them. I saw what Lyme did to his life. Uh, again, it's making me teary just thinking about it. And, you know, we, him and I had very similar experiences um, with symptoms, I was able to get it past those symptoms without the limes and never had to have a line put directly into my heart. So for me, I, I would say that it's worth trying. Mm -hmm. If you can find a doctor that will help you get through it, it's worth trying because just watching what he went through with all those antibiotics and, you know, just the, the complications that, that can come from injecting things right into your heart, especially as we're not medical professionals. Right. So was there anything else that all three of you had 
done from a holistic and naturopathic standpoint once you made that pivot from the antibiotics to the more naturopathic approach to heal from Lyme? The energy healing. And that's really what brought us into the business that we shared together today. Um, Amanda really brought us down that path. She, she was um, part of a mom's group and she had found this person that works uh, she's a massage therapist and she works with people that are chronically ill, end of life, um, cancer, uh, you know, seniors who are in end of life. And we decided to start getting um, massages, you know, to help open up the lymph and, and open those channels and help to drain. And um, the, the person, when she started working with us, she had just learned Reiki and I'll let Amanda tell the story because yeah. she's the one who really kind of brought us into that part of our journey. Yeah. So she came over to, um, to do a massage and it was unlike any massage that I had ever had before. I was, you know, I think we all kind of know what the expectation is of a massage, you know, it feels nice and, you know, warms up your muscles and all of that. But I was feeling like these amazing waves of energy going through my body. I was seeing colors. I was seeing images going through my field of vision. And it was just, it was beautiful and it was amazing. Um, but the other really amazing thing that happened was while she was doing whatever it is she was doing, because I didn't know at the time, um, I actually felt, it felt like a spigot opened up on the back of my neck, like a water spigot. And all of my brain fog just disappeared. It like drained. It felt like it was literally draining out of my brain. And I was like, what is happening? I mean, she literally just had her hands on the top of my head and I had never had a sensation like that before. And I mean, I laid down for that massage and there were times that I couldn't remember my own name. I, you know, everything like we play that game of charades because you can't remember the word for something so common and you're pointing and you know, I was doing that kind of thing all the time. And I got up from that massage and I was like, oh my gosh, like it was like my memories had come back and I remembered words again. And it just, it was amazing. And I said, okay, I said, that was a wonderful massage. And I, my muscles feel great and everything, but what else was going on? And that's when she explained, oh, you felt that. Well, I was doing some Reiki at the same time. And, um, that was kind of the beginning of a whole new, another pivot point in, in our journey with Lyme treatment. So before Rich explores energy healing and how you've used your experience to create your business, to help other people suffering from Lyme and other conditions, I just want to conclude my part of this podcast episode by asking you how you're feeling today. And it's very obvious you guys are doing very well, but if you could just give us an assessment of your overall health today, as we speak today. I, I mean, I'll speak for myself first, but I feel better than I ever have. I mean, being a child that was born with a heart problem and just always feeling kind of worn down. And then, you know, as a teenager having, you know, new issues start to ramp up and having this whole Lyme journey. And um, I can honestly say that I feel better than I ever have, you know, just all, I think that the gift that Lyme has brought to our lives is a gift of trusting ourselves, listening to ourselves, um, you know, being our own advocates, which I know so many of us have to learn in this journey. 
Um, but also just not being afraid to live a little bit differently. You know, I mean, our 20s weren't the 20s that you would see for average people in their 20s. You know, we weren't doing the bars and the drinking and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, we were, you know, we were traveling and then eventually treating all of this, but, um, but just to feel better than ever has been amazing. And I just feel, you know, I'm about to turn 45 years old and to feel better in my mid forties than I did as a teenager. And in my twenties has just been absolutely amazing. And I'll let Chris say yeah. his same here, you know, that all of our journey, um, it was very healing and then not just from Lyme, but you know, from trauma, from being younger and it just all culminated into the, the peace and the health that we have now. And the true blessing in it is being able to have compassion and share that with people going through the same thing and being able to show people there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. We know how dark those days are where you just, you know, the complete honesty, you, there are days where you wake up and you're like, oh, I woke up Can't again. Do it anymore. I, I have to do this another day. Yeah. How many more days can I do this? And, um, now every day is a blessing to wake up and, and to be excited to live again. And that is a possibility for everyone listening to this podcast. I promise you. So, but Chris, talk to us about that spiritual journey. Uh, there was this point where uh, Amanda promised God that she was going to change her life and she was going to help other people. If God helped you and your child through the challenges that he was facing at that moment. So talk about that calling and how that impacted your lives and your careers. Well, Rich, I could say that, you know, it was probably before we had come out here with our son, I, I remember having this pivot moment. Um, it was after those, those instances, Amanda and I, we took our son to go get some ice cream. It was in the summer. It was a hot day and we we're driving over and I just looked at her and I had, I had had this, this intuition. And I looked at her and I said, I don't know how I know this, but I'm here to do something bigger. And I can't tell you what that is or what that means, but I just, it just occurs to me that God has something special planned for me. And, you know, she just kind of smiled and said, yeah, I feel that. I feel that too. And um, little did I know that that was not an I, it was a we. Mm -hmm. um, but that was, you know, the, we had probably, we had started our, our, our Lyme treatment. I was starting to have better days, um, you know, even just being on the antibiotics and around that time, I started having more and more intuitive gifts coming in. And we, we, we had this moment where we came back from California the second time from our vacation. I was trying to finish up a college degree that I had started. And Amanda said, you're just going just gonna to work on that college degree. We're going to finish fixing up the house. And then as soon as you're done with that, that degree, you know, we'll see what we can do about moving out to San Diego. So I graduated from college. Um, in my late thirties, that weekend, it was mother's day weekend. I put together my resume. I sent it out there by Monday. I had a job offer that paid me more than double what I was making in New Hampshire because we didn't know how we were going to afford to live in San Diego. Everyone's like, it's so expensive. <laughs> the cost of living so high. Are you guys crazy? We're like, I am. Even if, even if we have to scrape and work two jobs, each of us, it's going to be worth it. And then 
it just happened like that. And we were like, whoa, this is, this is the start of something big. This is more powerful than us. You know, God really wants us to be out there because he's making it so easy. And within a matter of six weeks, we were in California and we, we had put our house on the market. We were, we were out here living the dream that we had always wanted to live. So that's kind of where it started. And then just being open to how that journey unfolded, you know, Reiki came into our lives. We realized what, um, a huge part of our healing journey that was, and then being able to share that with people, other people, not only um, for healing the Lyme, but for healing trauma. Um, it really cemented our faith in our creator and, and just being able to share that gift with other people. Um, and to live in service. Yeah, really to be in service. That is a huge part of our healing is, is being able to give back and it gives it purpose. Mm -hmm. I, being sick wasn't a punishment. I didn't do something wrong. I didn't deserve it. It actually taught me something and I'm able to turn that around and use it to help other people in the same position. It's just a beautiful circle. So man, talk about how you answered your call. You, you, you made the promise to God that you were going to help other people. Talk about how that changed you professionally. Well, as soon as I was able, I went and took Reiki classes myself after having that amazing experience on the massage table and, you know, realizing that um, there is a missing piece to healing. And I think that when we have chronic illness, we focus on the physical, we focus on getting our bodies to feel better. And we, you know, we had kind of we were hovering, I would say like 85% better maybe, but there was still that little way to go where there was still a couple of days a month where we weren't feeling great. You know, still some of that, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of depression, just because, you know, you go through a mourning period after going through all of this, like, oh my gosh, what just happened? Right. Um, and I recognized that there was definitely a missing component in the healing journey because we work on the physical and sometimes we even work on the emotional, right? Because so many times we're told literally that we're crazy. Um, you know, we're told to take anxiety medications or, oh, maybe you should go talk to somebody, you know, to, to go to see a talk therapist. And I think all of those things are incredibly important, but there's also an energetic component to healing. You know, we carry so much in our bodies. We all have blockages in our body that prevent us from being able to heal. Those blockages are in the form of past traumas. They're in the form of anxiety that ends up manifesting into something physical, you know, but we all have those blockages. And when I started to um, learn, well, I, I started experiencing Reiki on a regular basis for myself and it really accelerated healing. So Amanda, can, can I ask you to yeah. pause there for a second? Because sure. Those of us who have grown up in a traditional Western society sort yes. of have this woo-woo feeling about Reiki. So can you give us a description of what Reiki is and how you ultimately became um, acquainted with the, the um, philosophy and how that caused you to heal or enhance your healing? Sure. So Reiki is a Japanese energy healing technique. It's also used for relaxation. Um, it doesn't have any af religious affiliation. So uh, a lot of times that's something that is 
good for people to know because they feel like, oh, you know, you have to have a particular faith and, and you don't. People of all religions all over the world and people that, you know, are, are atheists and agnostic practice Reiki, anybody can do it. Um, and it really works off of the principles of quantum physics. So, uh, you know, when you study the atom in school, you're taught that there's the nucleus and the protons, electrons, neutrons, and then there's the space in between. And that space in between is, you know, dark matter, quantum, the quantum matter. So when you are trained to use Reiki, you're actually trained to move this quantum energy field and tap into somebody else through their human energy field or the quantum energy that's around them. So it's actually pretty scientific. Um, you know, some people call that quantum energy, they call that source energy, universal energy. Some people call it God. It really doesn't matter. We're all playing with the same energy here. So when we go in and we work with people um, using Reiki, we're actually tapping into that energy that's flowing through their body. And we can detect where these blockages are because we can see that the energy isn't flowing through. So then we use techniques that we learn um, to help that energy to shift or to break apart and move, you know, those blockages. So that way the energy can flow completely through the body. And this can be done in person or from a distance because we're working with quantum energy. So, you know, that quantum energy doesn't necessarily know a specific linear time um, or distance. It, it doesn't understand those things because it's uh, quantum energy. So we can use that to help anybody. So Amanda, you said you can see when there are blockages. How do you see or identify those blockages? Yeah, that's where my intuition really comes into it. Um, you know, I can just sense it in their body because as I'm trying to move energy and I'm not giving them my energy, I'm using quantum energies, but as I'm trying to move that energy through their body, I can feel that there's resistance. Um, and sometimes I can even see it uh, with my, with my, just using my senses, I can see that that energy isn't moving. And what will you do or what have you been trained to do to help the energy that is blocked to move? It's part of the Reiki techniques. Um, yeah. Really kind of identifying why it's there. Is it something tied to their physical or is it something tied to their emotional? Um, we, we think of only what we can see and, and discern with our five senses, but really our, our complete being is much like an iceberg that, that your physical is the 30% that's sticking out of the water, but 60% of your, your makeup, your emotional and your, um, your energetic bodies are the parts that you can't see but they're all there. We, we all have the ability to work on them, to heal them, and also to store trauma. They're almost like a, like a database that stores this trauma. So, um, you know, I, I've worked with a therapist before that, you know, she was talking about regre doing regressions for people. And she's had people that were victims of abuse where they start talking about abuse that they suffered, where they were slapped. And when they start to get into that trauma, the, the therapist said she could see a handprint where they were slapped during that trauma. So they were bringing that energy back and the, the physical body started to manifest that energy because <coughs> she was connecting them back to that point where that trauma happened. So what we're doing is in a more gentle manner, manner trying to go back to where those traumas were, whether it is 
you know, trauma from the Lyme disease or something else and removing those blockages and some, you know, practitioners discern that in different ways. You know, we get kind of feedback. You might feel some, some heat or like, like a push back on your, your hands. Like when you take two magnets and you push the, the same pole together, you get that, that resistance. That's kind of what we're feeling for um, intuitively on the people to find where those blockages are. And then we just apply energy and it's just laying our hands on. We do a, a brief meditation that starts the energy flowing and we just put energy in there until we can feel that that resistance is gone. Now, you folks have had a lot of success on your healing journey. And as a consequence of the success that you've had, you've decided now that you now have to serve others so that they can shortcut their journey. Talk to us about how you're doing that professionally. So what I've done in the last few years is, you know, not only have both of us become Reiki masters, but um, I've also learned biomagnetic therapy, which is kind of kind of bursting out into the, into the world here. Um, but living so close to Mexico, it's something that originated in Mexico. So a lot of people in Southern California use this therapy and I'm able to become a holistic health counselor so that I could work with people and give them suggestions and um, recommendations of what to do with the more, you know, the, the herbs and the supplements and medications and things like that. So I kind of bundled all of this together so that when I'm working with clients, I can talk to them about not only like the medical side, but I can also talk to them about the energetic side and, you know, what else is going on um, to help them to not have to go through all of those steps that we had to go through. Like if we had energy healing in the beginning, I don't think that our journey would have been nearly as long. Because, you know, we all hold so much in our bodies that a medication isn't going to make that go away, right? We've all had lousy things happen to us or traumas that we're holding on to. And energy healing is really the way to, to move through that. And then, you know, so many times when you're receiving energy work, all of a sudden you'll notice like, oh, my medications feel like they're working better. Or, you know, my brain fog isn't so heavy. So it's really become a, a part of my and Chris's mission to help people to understand how important it is to pay attention to the energetic component when you are healing, because you can do all of these medications and supplements and it, you know, it's, it's going to get you better to a point, but it might not necessarily get you to a full strong remission. So Amanda, if folks wanted to work with you how would they how would they locate you and how would they be able to uh, work out an arrangement where they could be coached by you folks? Sure. So our website is dollholistichealth.com and that's D-A-H-L holistichealth.com. We're also very active on Instagram. Um, Doll Holistic Health is our handle on Instagram. And then um, also Clubhouse. I don't know if you folks are on Clubhouse yet, but uh, I'm on Clubhouse and I've been giving talks over on Clubhouse as well. My handle over there is just Amanda Dahl. Um, but we are very open. We have a Facebook page. So really like whatever method people prefer to connect with us is fine with us. Um, you can even send me a direct email, amanda at dollholistichealth.com. We're very individualized in our approach. 
Some people want nothing to do with the energy work in the beginning. They only want to talk about the health coaching stuff. That is fine. We also offer, um, Christopher does soul coaching, which is, oh, I can let him explain about that. But um, that's another tool that we use with people because a lot of times there is a crisis of faith that might be going on during this or people need help re-entering regular life after going through something like this because I mean Lyme disease and chronic illness in general can be very isolating um, you know a lot of times we have a lot of people that don't believe us they fall out of our lives but honestly that can also be a gift because you don't need those people around you when you are trying to heal um, but you know we help you to like reintegrate back into life so we really take a very individualized approach. So many times we find that clients have lost their sovereignty over their own thoughts and ideas about what they want their treatment to be, about what they want their life in remission to be. So one of the very first questions that I always ask people is, where are you in this journey and what do you want and what feels good for you? Because so many times in this whole thing, nobody asks them that. And they feel like they're just kind of riding the wave of whatever a doctor tells them to do or how a family member makes them feel. And it's really all about bringing people back to themselves and their own energetic sovereignty in their journey of healing. So Chris, can you share with us before I ask our final question about soul coaching and what role that played in your healing? Sure. So soul coaching is just a discussion that we have and it is individualized to whatever the person wants to talk about. Um, but generally it has to do with a lot of times I get people called to work with me that have gifts that they were born with that they have never acknowledged to themselves mm -hmm. or maybe need some help sorting out. Um, in my own journey, you know, I was um, on my mother's side, there's a lot of sensitive people. By sensitive, I mean people that maybe can feel that there are people on the other side trying to communicate with them or angels or something else. And they're just trying to figure out, you know, what, I'm getting these intuitive messages. What does it mean? So we, we have a discussion and I use my intuition to help hone in on getting some answers on what, what they're looking for, or even just uh, to acknowledge and confirm that what they're experiencing is real. Um, I've worked with children, I've worked with adults. Um, it can feel very alone because you don't know it, who you can talk with about these things. Are people gonna think I'm crazy? Um, none of that stuff is off limits with us. You know, we, those things are very real to us. And, um, when I, by the time I end up working with people, it's usually because that's coming forward in their life and they're meant to, to do something with it. I call them gifts. Mm -hmm. It's a gift to be able to have that level of sensitivity. And generally there are other things that have happened to them in their lives that have um, brought them to empathy, either trauma or, or some other situations that have played into these gifts and, and them developing. And so we talk about what, why they have them and how they're supposed to share them with the world. So I'm going to ask the two of you for one final gift because you've gifted many, many, um, you've given many gifts to our listeners today. But I'm going to ask you for one final gift. And that is, if God forbid somebody in your family walked up to you right after this podcast and had a tick biting them on the arm, what would you recommend that they would do so that they wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? 
Let me take this one. Please. <laughs> First thing that I would do is I would recommend for everybody, you should have a tick removing tool in your house. Okay. Um, keep one in your car, keep one in your purse. I mean, I know it sounds really, you know, uh, radical, but you have to be able to properly remove the tick from your body. Um, and then I would send it to be tested because that can give you some peace of mind to know, like if that tick tests with something and maybe you're not showing symptoms yet, that's going to give you a lot of knowledge. So remove the tick. Um, the very next thing I would do is save it in a container, but you want to also, um, address the, the bite. So I would recommend, um, washing the bite, uh, for us, we always keep essential oils on hand so that we can jump right back into our protocol. Should, I mean, we haven't been bitten by a tick since remission, but, um, we would take essential oils, use magnets on the bite, um, to get that down and just make sure that we're continuing to do all of the lifestyle things that we do to maintain um, the best health that we can. And then we would send the tick off to be tested just to see what's up there. Now, if essential oils aren't your jam, um, the, the other thing that people can do uh, after removing the tick and saving the tick and washing the bite, um, you know, be persistent to talk to your doctor and try to get on some kind of treatment immediately, whether you know what's going on, whether you know you have Lyme or not, um, you know, get on antibiotics right away. I believe that they typically prescribe doxycycline for 30 days. If you have a tick bite, um, I would do that. And the other thing is if you get the bullseye rash, okay, and this is a big misconception. People say, oh, well, if you have a rash, let's just see what happens. No, if you have that rash, it means that that tick has Lyme disease. So please, please don't ignore that rash. If you go to a doctor with that rash and they say that that's not Lyme, let's see what happens, then hightail it to another doctor as fast as possible because you need to start treatment immediately um, so that you don't have to go through 18 years of what we went through. So, man, I have a couple of follow-up questions, and that is, what essential oils would you use if you were bitten by a tick? And talk to us about the magnets and how you would use the magnets. Um, the essential oils that I would probably use, like on the outside of the tick bite, I would probably use lavender um, because it's just it's got a lot of good properties in it to keep the swelling down and you know just kind of contain everything. That would probably be my first one. I mean, if somebody doesn't know, you know, all of the ins and outs of Lyme disease, they might be a little hesitant. I wouldn't necessarily jump into taking oils internally. Um, the way that we use magnets, I mean, we worked with a biomagnetic therapy practitioner um, and I am a practitioner. So I know like where to use the magnets. So it'd be hard to tell somebody how to use the magnets if they didn't have any formalized training, but you could um, go and work with a biomagnetic practitioner. I can also do that virtually. So that's another um, service that I can do. I want to thank you all for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Amanda and Christopher Dahl. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Amanda and Christopher Dahl and their Lyme disease journey, please visit their Instagram page at Dahl Holistic Health. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. 
Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp has created the Tick Bite Blueprint, which has been inspired by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any helpful improvements you would like to offer. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes or our website. As always, we thank you for listening.